Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for your patience this morning. Let's hear it for our sound team in the back. Yay! All of us are thinking, come on, you can fix it. And we have no idea how to fix it. So we're grateful for those guys. You guys are working hard and we know it. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6, which is where we will uh, be today. This is our fourth week in Mark chapter 6. Who knew Mark chapter 6 would be so rich? I kind of knew. I looked ahead. Um, A little joke there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this place. Lord, we thank you for these guys that are working hard in the system. Lord, we thank you for our worship team today and rolling with the punches punches and uh, being used by you to usher us into your presence. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that as we uh, dig into your word, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as Mark prayed. And, Lord, we all come here just with different things that are going on in us. Some of us desperately need this morning to be comforted by you. Lord, there's some of us in this room, we really need to be challenged by you. Lord, some of us here are playing around with sin and thus we need your conviction. And Lord, your word is living and it's active. Lord, we know it's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, And so Lord, we pray that you would do what you need to do in us in the deep places that you might be glorified. So bless our time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do want to begin just by thanking all of those that were involved with our Thanksgiving luncheon on Friday. It was uh, just a great day, and so many people uh, really poured into it. We're grateful for uh, the folks that attended and those that they brought people to it. So praise the Lord for that. It was really good to see the body working together. As I said, we're in Mark chapter 6 today, and I'll remind you, it would be ideal if we could do the whole book of Mark in one sitting. Uh, That would sort of give us the flow and the context of things. It would be ideal if we could do a whole chapter in one sitting to sort of get the flow at least of that little section of material, but then we'd be here for a long time each time. And so let me just remind you that immediately before where we're going to go today, the event that was occurring is that Jesus had sent his disciples out to minister. They had returned to Jesus. We're telling them all that was going on. We don't know exactly. Was it a week? Was it a weekend? Was it a month that they were away? But they returned to explain, like, this is what happened. We were teaching this, and people were responding. We were praying these prayers, and people were being healed. This one guy came to me with demons, and I prayed, Lord, that he would uh, be delivered, and he was. It was so cool. And they're telling these stories to Jesus, and Jesus says, guys, let's get away for a bit. Let's go to a desolate place where we could have some time with each other to relax, to refresh, to be strengthened, to debrief, all those kinds of things. Jesus says, let's do that. And you'll look in Mark chapter 630, which is kind of where we were last week. And he says there about halfway through that section, he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while, a place where they can go and they can rest. Now, the trip across the sea, they probably didn't, you know, um, push the motor or whatever. They, they were taking their time. So that's part of their rest, certainly by sitting on that boat. But we saw that when they get to the other side of the sea, thousands of people have already gathered there. 
that they had seen that they were heading that direction. They race on ahead of them and get there before them. And as I pointed out, I, I have to imagine for some of the disciples, if not all the disciples, there's a little bit of a frustration, maybe even a little bit of a disappointment. Look at all the people. How fun. I thought we were going to rest. I thought it was our day off. You know, these kinds of things. But there are those people. And Jesus, again, his response is, look, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They need to be ministered to. And he begins to teach them for a lengthy period of time, so long that it begins to get dark. This is all a review. All right? It begins to get dark there, and the disciples say, send them away. And Jesus there, so beautifully, setting a picture for us, he says, you don't need to send them away to solve their problem. You be the solution to their problem. You guys, he says, give them something to eat, which they did. Now, verse 45, we read this, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while Jesus dismissed the crowd. Now, we know that there was 5,000 men at this place. And Matthew tells us, besides the women and children. And so we estimate there were tens of thousands of people, maybe 20,000 or more people that were gathered there. And Jesus miraculously began to feed them. Then we read in verse 45 that after everybody had their filled, after the disciples were able to pick up 12 baskets for themselves, we read in verse 45 there of Mark, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Now, John's passage gives us a little more insight into what is going on. And so if you were to look at John's passage, and I'm just going to show you a couple verses from there, there's material that's inserted right between Mark 6.44 and Mark 6.45. Does that make sense, what I'm describing there? And so Mark doesn't give us all of the details of what's going on. There's quite a bit of material found in John chapter 6. And so you may want to read there, but I'll just give you one of those verses. John 6.15 says this, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, so right between 44 and 45, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They want to make him king. He's provided this food for us. Surely he can take over the Roman Empire, which has occupied the area of Israel. And Jesus senses this, he knows this. And so putting now the Mark passage, he compels the disciples, get in the boat and go. I'm going to stay here and I'll get rid of all of these particular people. Because Jesus knew that the reason they wanted to make him king wasn't because of his great teaching that he did that day. It was because of his supply of food. And that stirred in them this desire for an earthly king that could throw off the Romans. That's what Jesus perceived was going on in the hearts of these people. And this great miracle that he did, and indeed it was a great miracle. Wouldn't it be great to have a king that could just, you know, snap his fingers and everyone is provided for? And for them, they knew that this desire for a Messiah was not for a spiritual king to come over and reign in their hearts, but for an earthly king that would put them in charge again. And so Jesus now, he compels his disciples to get out of there. It's almost as if Jesus knows his disciples are going to be swept up in this if they're not out of there. And so he's just, you guys just get away, I'll take care of all this. And so it says that he made his disciples. You see that there in 645, he made his disciples. That word made is physically forced them to get in the boat. And so it's not just, guys, come on, you should go. He physically forces some of them. I had a nun in Catholic school when I was little. Grabs you by the ear. Remember those nuns? I mean, you had them. And they brought you to where you had to be. They made you. They compelled you. Jesus grabbed one of these disciples, at least by the ear, we have to imagine. 
All right, and that leads us now to the next passage. Again, as I've always said, try to look back at the parallel passages during this week, put things in context. The parallel passages for what we're about to read, Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33, John 6, verses 16 to 21. Let's read Mark's take on it, starting in verse 45. He says again, immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them, to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. Now, remember a couple things. Well, from an earthly perspective, the whole purpose of going across the Sea of Galilee was to do what? Was to rest. Rest never came because there's thousands of people there pressing in, having needs, and so Jesus begins to provide for their needs and begins to teach them their greatest need. Then he begins to feed them. Then the disciples are running around doing all of that. Then he tells them to go pick up all of the leftovers. They gather all of that up. Then the crowds begin to come and say, we want you to be our king, and so on. This was a very busy day for Jesus and for the disciples here. And Jesus, who was going to get away for just as much rest as his disciples were, at the end of his very busy day, what does he go do? He goes and he prays. Now, we almost expect that this would say, after a long day of unexpected ministry, Jesus went up onto the mountain to rest. And yet it says he went up onto the mountain to pray. He had a long, difficult day, spent ministering, and all the disciples did, but spent ministering to the spiritual and the physical needs of the multitude. And what does that cause in us? A lot of us have been there. We've been ministering to people's needs. At the end of a long day of doing that, what are you crying out for? What are you desiring? You're desiring rest. You're not thinking about, oh, maybe I can get a quick quiet time in before night. You're thinking rest. More than likely, what you're thinking is you come to the end of that long, busy, draining day, and you think, Lord, I would love to take some time to pray, but I just need to rest right now, Lord. I'll check in with you in the morning. Am I the only one? Come on. We've all been there. That's what we're thinking. But notice, though, and I'm not trying to guilt us. This is Jesus or whatever. I'm not trying to guilt us. I'm just trying to say Jesus knew the restorative properties of prayer. Jesus knew that. And so whereas we know the restorative properties of taking a nap or laying down on the couch and watching some TV, Jesus knew the restorative properties of prayer. So what I'm trying to throw out to us is perhaps we need to, from time to time, where we feel the only thing I can do right now is rest. Maybe during we need to introduce into those times, you know what I should do is pray. So we can begin to discover the restorative properties of prayer as Jesus did. Is that making sense? And so the the word of application for that, uh, after a hard day, Jesus didn't turn from prayer. He was driven to prayer. And he found restoration there. Verse 47, it said, now when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and, and he was alone on the land. 
And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. He appeared as if he was just going to stroll on by them there. Jesus is on the land. They're out in the Sea of Galilee. Now, this doesn't mean that this is a miracle. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is pretty low, and surrounding the Sea of Galilee are all these hills. Our Bible oftentimes calls them mountains. They're not really mountains. They're like hills. And so you sort of, if Jesus is up on one of those mountains, one of those hills, he has a vantage point that he can look out over the disciples, anybody that is out there. And you can do that. You can go to the Sea of Galilee today. Our hotel, a lot of times when we go, is right there on the Sea of Galilee. And if you're a couple of floors up, you just sort of look out and you can see the traffic and the activity that is going out there on the sea. And so this is probably just a natural thing that is going on. In addition, we learn that this whole series of events is taking place uh, right about when the Passover is about to happen. And so John chapter 6 actually says it. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And the Jewish Passover always coincided with, it's, never, it's not like Christmas, December 25th, the way we celebrate it here. It always coincides with the full moon. And the full moon changes, you know, all the time. And so Passover comes uh, with the spring full, full moon. They're going to coincide with one another. And so Jesus is up on this hill looking out and seeing the ship that is out there. And there's a bright full moon spotlight right down on these people. And so he's watching them. Notice it says there, as he prayed, he saw that they were making headway painfully. More often than not, we close our eyes to pray. Jesus, it seems more often than not, lifted up his head or open, and kept his eyes open to pray. And he's looking out and he's seeing his disciples. And they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. But notice it says they're making headway painfully, which means they're not really going anywhere. They're, they're sort of on those, uh, you know, you go the, the opposite way on an escalator. And you can make grounds if you start moving, you know, pretty good. But more often than not, you're just sort of holding steady. And once you stop, you begin to go the other direction there. And so these guys, they're making headway painfully. They're advancing a little, but not very quickly. They're making slow progress. Notice it says in verse 48 that it was about the fourth watch of the night. Now, the, the phrase, the watch of the night, it actually came from the Romans and the Jews had to go by it too because the Romans were in charge, and so they used the terminology as well. But a watch of the night was a Roman method of determining time, and there's four of them in a night. The first watch is from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., so the day before, if you will. Second watch, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Third watch, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And then the fourth watch, the, the last of the three-hour periods, is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and as Mark points out, this was about the fourth watch of the night. It's about 3 a.m. in the morning here. Now remember, they left the other side where they had just finished the people. Remember, what prompted them to tell Jesus to send the people away? Evening was coming. Dinner was coming. First watch was coming. 6 p.m. was coming. Then they fed all the people. And then they said, all right, everyone, here's your to-go basket. Everybody, you have to head out. Let's say that was 7 p.m., 8 p.m. Let's just be generous. Say it was 9 p.m. It took them three hours to get everybody fed and to begin to send them on their way. If it is now about 3 a.m., and they did set sail around 3, uh, about 9 p.m., they've been sailing now for about six hours, rowing and rowing and rowing and not really getting anywhere. This sounds like a really fun day. All right? This trip should not have taken them six hours. 
They're not even going from like nine o'clock to three o'clock on the dial. They're, they're cutting across like from like three o'clock to like something like 11 or something like that. All right, so it should not have taken them that long to get across there. Notice what Mark says. This is in the, the New King James. He says, and the boat was in the middle of the sea. John will add in his version that they had rowed about three or four miles, and they were still in the middle of the sea. As we said, the English Standard Version describes it as they were making headway painfully. That's an interesting phrase. It's actually just one word, making headway painfully, is just one word in the Greek language. And it's interested how, interesting how the word is used in other places in the scripture. In particular, 2 Peter chapter 2. Now listen to the context here. It said, He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. Making headway painfully is translated in that version, tormenting. They were tormented by the rowing. Physically, mentally, emotionally, there was anguish that was associated with the difficult task of rowing with all of you got, all you got, and not really getting anywhere at all. Steady, backbreaking rowing. This was supposed to be a weekend of rest. We never got our rest. So I wonder, how would you be feeling right now if you're out in that boat rowing and rowing and rowing? And what would you be thinking if you were making headway painfully? I suspect you would be tired. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. Human beings should not be out at 3 a.m. in the morning. What are we doing out here? It's 3 a.m. in the morning. They're tired, I'm sure, because I would be. They were cranky. I imagine that there was arguments going on because you're not rowing as hard as I'm rowing. And how come you don't stop? If you stop, we all stop, and then we lose ground. So people are probably blaming one another. I'm sure somebody referred to the boat as a stupid boat that we are in at one point in time or another. I'm just listening in on my heart conversations. And I'm sure somebody has begun asking, what about that rest we were promised? We never got that rest. And there may have been some bad attitude disciples that even thought, oh, Jesus had to pray. He's praying while we're doing this. And he just knew we would have this difficult time and he didn't join us here. Now, put this into your own life circumstances. Sometimes you feel like your life, you're rowing and rowing and rowing. And maybe you're making a little bit of progress, but you feel like stopping. But you know if you stop, you're just going to lose all the progress that you did make. And life feels hard and life feels difficult. And you begin asking things like this and complaining like these disciples are. But I suspect you also begin to ask this question. Lord, where are you? Lord, don't you care? Lord, why aren't you helping me? And we ask questions on the big scale things. Lord, if you are indeed all powerful and you're all loving, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you helping me right now in my difficulty? Lord, if you loved me, you would be here and you'd be helping me. Now, unbeknownst to them, Jesus does know what they're going through, and he sees what they're going through. As we look at 648, it says, and Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. And I have to imagine as he saw that they were having a difficult time, he was praying for them, not praying necessarily that they would come out of the difficulty, but praying for them in the difficulty. Because the reality is, in this life, we will have tribulation. 
we will have difficulty. There's garbage that is going around the Christian church that essentially says you become a Christian, your life will be great and easy. Let me just tell you, every one of us in this room, unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. You're going to get sick and you're going to die. You're going to have some tragedy in your life. And the people you care about and the people you love are going to die. In this world, you will have tribulation. And it's wrong of ministers or Bible teachers to teach something differently. And so Jesus isn't necessarily going to deliver us from those things, but he's going to deliver us in those things. He sees us, he cares for us, he loves us, and he will minister to our needs even in the midst of those difficulties. Sometimes in the difficulties we wonder, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you mad at me? Why are you punishing me right now? Please remember this. The disciples are only in this boat because they're being obedient to Jesus. Jesus compelled them to get in this boat. It wasn't as if they stepped out of his will and said, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Remember, Jesus made them get in this boat, and what became associated with that was difficulty. So they're not being disciplined because of disobedience, which does sometimes happen. They're being disciplined because of obedience. Now, of course, I'm referring to discipline in the sense of what's the root of the word discipline? It's the word disciple. And Jesus is teaching them, and he's going to teach them something about himself. He's going to refine their understanding of who he is. And to do that, he puts them through this struggle. And he sees them, even as he sees us. Their struggle was what? Crossing a windswept sea. Our struggle might be something like walking in a godly way in an increasingly godless culture, where you feel like you're the only one at your place of work, at your school, in your family, around the dinner table, and you continue to try to walk godly in that, that's your struggle. Their struggle was straining for six hours or more at the oars. Your struggle might be, our struggle might be the daily grind of honoring the Lord at your place of business, or as you try to raise your kids, or as you commit yourself to your studies in high school or in college. We all have different struggles, but Jesus sees us in those struggles. My point is this, is that we all go through things that we would prefer not to have to go through, that we didn't, that we wish we didn't have to, where we didn't have to ask those questions, Lord, where are you? Or Lord, don't you understand what I'm going through? Or Lord, why aren't you helping me? And so I hope the word of encouragement from this passage is this, is that the Lord sees and that the Lord is aware and that the Lord is about to move in those circumstances. Amen for that? Not, not a hearty amen, but okay. Verse 48, just keep thinking about it. Verse 48, it says there that he came to them walking on the sea. Now, if this is the first time you've ever read this or heard of this particular account, you're probably thinking, what? Walking on the sea? Well, notice even for the disciples, this was a foreign idea to them. This as it may be to some of us in this room. 49 goes on to say, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, is that an unreasonable thing to think? Uh, no, I don't know if you believe in ghosts or not, but it's probably not a human walking out there on the sea, because that just doesn't happen. They are about half, they're in the middle, in the depths of the Sea of Galilee, depending on the water level. It's about 150 feet deep in the deepest parts at the deepest times. All right, so this isn't some trick. You know, he's not at the edge of the water walking, you know, kind of just on the, the coast or something. He's out in the middle of it here. 
And it says that they cried out. I found this to be interesting as I was looking at this. That word cried out is only used five times in all of the New Testament. It's used here to describe how the disciples respond. It's used in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, same story, where there was a loud cry that the unclean spirit made when the man was in the synagogue and Jesus said, be quiet, come out of him. And the unclean spirit made a loud cry. And that's the word. Luke chapter 8, you remember the demons that were living amongst the tombs? It says that when Jesus delivered that man of his many demons, we are legion because we are many, that they came out with a loud cry. And when the masses of people, the crowd of people, when Pilate came out and said, do you want me to release to you Barabbas or him that is called uh, Jesus? And it says the crowd cried out, we want Barabbas. Now, in each of those, the ones with the demons and the, and the ones with Barabbas, I don't think people are saying, eh. I don't think it's some little menial cry. It's a loud scream. It's a scream, a, an utterance of terror. I was in a shed. I have a shed at home, and I was setting it all up and making it look nice and stuff like that because men love their sheds. Uh, and a little mouse went running. It, it went just running on the edge and like behind some stuff and then out into the open and behind some stuff. And I went, ooh, like that. And then I knew it was there because it didn't leave. And then it went back the other way. And I went, ooh, again. And I screamed. That's not the scream. All right, I was a little nervous. I wasn't that scared. This word here that is used, it's to scream from the depth of your throat. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 50. These guys were terrified, it says. For they all saw him and they were terrified. And Jesus immediately speaks into their terror. He says, take heart, it is I. He says, do not be afraid. Isn't that something? Jesus responds to a prayer that they don't even utter. He responds, they're just screaming, ah! And he says, it is I, don't be afraid. He responds to a prayer that isn't even uttered. It just simply says, uh, they cried out. It doesn't say they cried out to him. They just cried out. They just screamed. And in the same way that Jesus saw them from the mountain, the hill, Jesus heard them, even though they didn't actually say a prayer, and he ministered peace to them. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. Mark goes on, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, not recorded in Mark's account is that before Jesus got into the boat, Peter got out of the boat. It's interesting, you read about it in the book of Matthew. Matthew tells us that Peter, Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter wants to put that to the test. He wants to see if the I in it is I is really Jesus or not. And so he says, Jesus, if it is you, command me to come out there on the water as well. You can read the whole account. It's in Matthew 14. Long story short, Peter gets out of the boat himself. And he begins to walk on the water alongside of the Lord. And then eventually they come back together. They get back in the boat. Peter, Jesus, all the disciples now are in the boat. And don't you know, what's it say in 51 there? It says, the wind ceases. Now, I imagine that everything just stopped. The rowing stopped, the complaining stopped, the arguing stopped. And just for a moment, the disciples stood there or sat there dumbfounded as to what just happened. In fact, we don't have to imagine too much because notice what it says in 51. It says, they were utterly astounded. I guess they were. 
We've read the story. Yeah, Jesus, he can walk out on the water. They didn't read the story. And again, they're discovering one more new thing about the Lord as they're his close disciples. Now, what's interesting is this. Notice Mark's response. Well, Mark's statement, I should say. Mark is surprised by the disciples' response. And he says in verse 52, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's as if Mark is, what Mark is trying to do is he's cleaning this all up and wrapping it up. It's as if he's saying that they were terrified. Isn't that silly? They were utterly astounded. Isn't that ridiculous? They didn't understand about the loaves. Mark is surprised by their response to Jesus walking on the water. And what he's saying is, had they taken to heart the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, then this phenomenon of walking on the water shouldn't have been anything to them at all. And again, he fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. We know, we've read other parts, he calmed a storm in another instance with just one word. He raised a little girl from the dead. He delivered demons from even the most impossible of cases, and he healed various folks of diseases. And so any one of those miracles, and all of those miracles combined, should have convinced them of what Jesus could do. But Mark says there that their hearts were hardened. Can you believe these guys? They had hard hearts. You know, I am really glad that my heart is never hardened and that I always trust the Lord in all instances. Despite all of the evidence in our lives of God's power and his wisdom and his goodness, from time to time we forget, don't we? Of course, I speak tongue-in-cheek about myself. I forget a lot. And we forget sometimes, or maybe we remember those other instances, but we fail to apply what we learn in the other instances to the present circumstances that we have. And suddenly, the difficulties of this circumstance blind us to who God is and what he has done in other circumstances and in past circumstances. Some of us even here maybe are thinking, that would never happen to me. I would never forget. Really? I got to, huh. Really? You never forget? It happens to every other Christian but you? We forget? The reality is all of our hearts are drawn away. They're pulled away like a current in a sea. They're just pulled away toward a hardening of the heart or an unbelieving. Now, I'm not suggesting you're losing your salvation necessarily, or you are. I'm not suggesting you are losing your salvation. I'm not suggesting you're about to join you know, some crazed motorcycle gang and kill kittens or something and become some bad person. I'm just saying you're drifting. And it happens. Our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to draw back. You remember that old hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That was a disciple. Whoever wrote that was a disciple that knew the tendency that many of us, if not all of us in this room say, yeah, I know that tendency too. I'm doing super today, and then a new circumstance comes, and I wander. I draw back. Some will say, well, look, maybe for you, but I'm a very spiritual person. I'm even a leader in the church. Yeah, these guys were too. They were not only leaders in a church. They were leaders in the church. They were the apostles. Remember, just 20 verses earlier. Now, it was seven days ago for us to look at it, but 20 verses earlier in the book of Mark, they were out on a mission trip. Preaching the gospel, healing, being used by God to heal people, being used by God to deliver people from demons. These were solid Christians, and yet they forgot. They drifted. They drew back. 
Our heart, is, as a Christian, is prone to wander away from the place of faith. And what the wise Christian does is this. Number one, we know we have a problem. You hear that with Alcoholics Anonymous and think, hi, I'm this and I got a problem and here it is. We know we have a problem. Here's our problem, Christians. We're, we are prone to drift back, to unbelief, to the place where we're not trusting. And so what does the wise Christian do? We bring ourselves back. We bring ourselves back. We bring ourselves back. You do that every morning when you get up or after evening, whenever you want to have your quiet time here. Some are not going to buy into that morning one, I understand. Whenever it is you have your quiet time, you bring your heart back. You remind yourself again of God, who he is, and his truth. All right, but then when you enter into each of those circumstances and you find yourself starting to panic or starting to get frustrated or starting to get angry or whatever it may be, whatever your little sin tendency is, you slip off to the bathroom. Lord, I'm about to freak out on someone. And you get yourself back. You draw back in. We need to do that on a regular basis. And how do we do that? Well, we do it through prayer. We do it through God's word. We do it through fellowship with others. It's just good to gather with others that are running hard after the Lord. You almost get swept up in their race with them and find yourself all of a sudden, now you're running. We do it by speaking truth into our lives to counteract the lies which are out there and find their way into our hearts and in our minds. And so these disciples, hold on one second. In obedience, they got in the boat. They were doing what they were told to do. They go to the other side as they were instructed, but it was a difficult and painful process for them. And it will be for us as well, even as we walk in our obedience. But notice Christ gets into the boat and it tells us immediately, this is from John 6, immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Somehow they made it through the struggle, didn't they? They brought Christ into that struggle with them and they made it to the other side. You will as well. And if you don't, you'll die and you'll be in glory. And that's a good thing. All right? And I'll say, well, stinks. That, no, that's a good thing. All righty there. But he'll take you through. The writer of Hebrews says something similar. Look, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You're not dead yet. Right, keep serving the Lord. He's faithful. Now we go on. Let's finish with this. Now when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. They moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and, to, and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages or cities or countryside, <coughs> they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him that he might touch, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Verse 53 tells us they came to Gennesaret, um, we see there. Now, they had originally set out for, if you look back at verse 45, Bethsaida, and they end up in Gennesaret. Those are about two villages over for one another. And so either they were blown off course, they were heading to Bethsaida and they ended up in Gennesaret, or they landed in Bethsaida and walked to Gennesaret. One way or another, they end up in this area of Gennesaret. Verse 40, or excuse me, 54 seems to be leaning toward this idea that they were blown off course because it says, now when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and they ran about the whole region uh, and began to bring the sick people on their bed. So it seems to me that they were blown off course. And they roll with those punches as well. And once again, the people. And the people start to come. And he's inundated, the Lord is, the disciples are, with Sikh people. Because the people that could run immediately run to the people that couldn't run. That makes sense? 
and they bring these people because the healer is here. And everything that is needed for healing, if you will, was present. There was a recognition that Jesus was here. There was a realization of their need to be healed. And there was a belief that if they could get to Jesus, he could meet their particular need. All of those requirements, if you will, of faith were present. And isn't it interesting? Those are the exact requirements needed for salvation as well. For a person to experience the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of Christ, they have to realize three things. Number one, that Jesus can save. Number two, that they need him to save them. And number three, that he will save them if they can get to him and cry out to him in faith. And that's what these, disciples, these uh, people were doing. The people of Genesaret, they were crying out to the Lord that he might make them physically well. God in his great love desires that every one of us in this room cry out to him in faith that he would make them spiritually well. Look, if you're not a Christian, that means your sins are not yet forgiven. It's the same place every one of us in this room that is a Christian has been at one point in their lives. Jesus draws us to himself. He forgives us of his sins when we confess our sin, and we're forgiven. We're saved, as people describe it. If that's never happened to you, I want to encourage you. Take some time, consider what that means, and then cry out to him in faith. Verse 56 goes on, and it says, Mark writes that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. All these sick people, all they want to do is get close enough to Jesus to touch the fringe of his garment. And many touched it and were made well. Now, we've already learned in our study of the Gospel of Mark that healing doesn't actually come from the fringe of Jesus' garment. And so there was this woman, and she had the issuance of blood for 12 years, and she crawled her way through the crowd, and she says to herself, if I could just touch the, the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Now, the healing comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from the hem of his garment or anything like that. He is the one that heals. And, but in this instance, that's what they begin saying to themselves as well, just like that woman did. And Jesus honors their simple faith. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, look, I've been trying to get this rumor out there under control. It has nothing to do with that. He doesn't stop them or anything like that. But in the simplicity of their faith, he meets them at that spot. And so I want to draw this for, again, for those in this room that may not yet know Christ. You've come around a lot. You've heard a lot of things. I want to draw this to you for a second. You may not know all of the details of what it means to become a Christian and to be a Christian. But in the simplicity of your faith, you understand this. You're a sinner. He's a savior. And if you can get to him, he'll bring you healing. And so even though you may not know every single other thing you might one day want to know and need to know about what it means to follow Christ, you know that. And in the simplicity of your faith, I want to encourage you, call out to the Lord Jesus. Just like these men and these women did here in Gennesaret, call out to him that he might forgive you, that he might wash you, and you'll be cleansed and able to walk with him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to end there today. We'll pick up again in chapter 7 when we are together next week. Let's pray together. Father, we are praying for those in our room here today that have been considering the things of God. Maybe they have a friend, a loved one that brought them, brings them all the time perhaps. And they have not yet come to the place of uh, entrusting their soul to you. Lord, I pray today that you would give them the courage to do so. Lord, you would just open up their hearts, open up their minds to their need for a Savior and that Christ alone is the only one that can save. 
and that they would respond, Lord, even in the simple faith, and they would believe. Lord, for the many of us in this room that are Christians, we've done all that that I've just described. Lord, a lot of our lives feel like we are the disciples in a boat that's not really going anywhere. And we're just struggling and struggling and struggling. We just want to give up. And we begin to doubt, do you care? Do you love me? Do you see my need? Are you going to do anything about it? Lord, I pray that our passage of Scripture today would bring a great encouragement. Lord, it would refresh sort of our vigor and our energy to run this race or uh, to row this boat well and to continue to do so. And so, Father, we, uh, we submit ourselves to you again in a fresh way. And we do ask that you would go before us in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.